0: chapter 6. So we're going to look at the whole chapter. It's an overview, right? So we're going, to, we're going to sometimes we're going to zoom in and pay close attention to what's being said. And then sometimes we're just going to hit some things that are being said in the passages because I've already taught these messages. I maybe came up with four messages from this particular chapter. I'm going to kind of condense into one that may even have some thoughts that I didn't share when I initially worked on this, this, this chapter. But one of the things that we looked at two weeks ago at the end of Romans 5, we looked at how does identity work? Right, someone had asked a question the previous week. And so then two weeks uh, ago when I taught on Romans 5, I explained sort of a biblical theology of identity and just showed how that's a, a, a reality. Like one of the things that Jesus has come to restore is our identity in God, our identity in Christ, as we call it. He's, that identity was lost when, we, when Adam and Eve bit the fruit. And then the whole storyline of the Bible is waiting until Jesus comes, lives perfectly, and then we inherit his identity, if you will, which is what the scriptures are teaching. And so we ended that. I want to read just a couple of verses, the last three verses of Romans chapter 5, so we can just kind of get in our minds, because chapter 6 starts with an assumption from chapter 5. So let's just read quickly the last three verses of chapter 5 and it says this beginning in verse 18. So then as though one trespasses as though one trespass there is condemnation for everyone so also there is sorry I got notifications bothering me. So then as, as though one trespass there is condemnation for everyone so also Through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the trespass, the law meaning the Ten Commandments and so forth, the law of Moses. It multiplied the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more, so that just as sin reigned in the earth, so also grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So I'm not going to, re- you have to go back and listen to the message if you want to hear that more unpacked. But, but essentially what this passage is saying and what God is trying to drill through our heads through the writing of Paul in the book of Romans is that Jesus's obedience is so significant that it overshadows our disobedience. So even though the law came, the Mosaic law came, and now all these people know what sin is, and so now you know when you do this that you're sinning against God, he says grace comes even more. So grace to overshadows our disobedience. It covers our disobedience And it changes us to desire to be obedient. A perfect illustration came to me as I was watching WandaVision. WandaVision, episode six. At the very end, for those of you that haven't watched WandaVision, I'm sorry. These next three minutes are not for you, but you'll get the point in a second. At the end of chapter six in WandaVision, Vision, who is a superhero, who, has, who was killed in, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, in, in what was it? Endgame. Endgame. No, it was Infinity War. At the end, Thanos got him, and he killed him. And so he's alive in this fake world. And we realize as you're watching the series that Wanda is controlling this fake world, and everyone is in this huge, read a whole town of people are in this huge red sort of energy bubble. And as Vision is starting to realize that this is all fake, he starts to walk out of the bubble to find out what's going on. But once he walks out of that, his reality comes to life, and he's starting to die. And as Wanda, who is controlling this bubble, realizes it now everyone in the bubble are real people but inside the bubble they have no clue they're totally different they're under this trance if you will they don't even they may look the same physically but they just operate differently because Wanda is supposedly controlling all of this and so when Wanda realizes that vision is leaving the bubble she screams and all of a sudden the bubble starts to extend broader It starts to get bigger, covering more people. Now, there are these agents who are outside watching this happen, and they're called, uh, was it Shield or Sword? Sword. I'm off my game right now. It's a lot going on, but I'll be back, though. But so this bubble starts to expand. Sword is kind of like this superhero FBI, if you will. And they're watching, and they see this bubble getting closer, so they all start running away from it. But they can't outrun it. And as soon as the bubble hits them, it changes them. From FBI agents to now they're in the circus, or now they're the milkman, or now they have a totally different identity once they get included in that bubble. Okay? Jesus' death on the cross is Wanda's bubble. And once you're in that bubble, your identity changes. You're no longer outside of it. You become a part of what's happening inside that bubble. This is what happens in Jesus Christ. Our identity changes from being who we were, which is in Adam, to who we are now in Jesus, just like what Wanda did. But what Jesus did is better because what Wanda did is temporary. What Jesus has done is eternal. Our obedience Our disobedience even is covered by his obedience. So we have this new identity that is greater than the identity we had. And we start living just like they do in WandaVision. We're living in light of this new identity. Now, here's the hard part about Scripture, particularly passages like Romans 6. There are times when we process scripture based on our experience. I can identify with that, you know. You're suffering, you're struggling, you can go to passages that talk about that. You're fearful, you're anxious, you can go to passages, the Bible speaking to our experience. But then, so we just, we we can understand this and relate to it because we know what, at least on some level, what it's talking about. We feel this. We feel the emotion of this particular passage. Well, there are times when Scripture is telling us something that's true, but it's not our experience. It's not how we see ourselves or how we see the world. And so when that happens, we realize something that faith in Jesus is not just faith that I've been forgiven for my sins, but faith in Jesus has to extend not to just my sin being forgiven, but that I'm a son or a daughter with the power to begin a new living. That requires faith because it's not our experience. It's not how I feel. Case in point, look at, let's look at Romans chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1, listen to what it says. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, so we too may walk in newness of life. This is a shocking passage if for no other reason, it makes statements about our identity in Christ that are often opposite of how we feel as believers in Christ. How many of you feel like you've died to sin? Show of hands. Show of text, just send them a text message. How many of you feel like you were baptized into Christ Jesus and baptized into his death and you've been therefore buried with him? How many of you feel like that? Oh, I bet you the majority of us do not. It's describing something that we can't often feel, but it's from God's perspective. See, God doesn't always give us theology that we can relate to. He gives us theology that we must believe in. And this is one of those chapters where you have to believe by faith in what God's saying because it's often you can't believe in it by sight. Romans 6 is such a chapter. And he's describing how grace is to be played out in our lives. And just looking at it, we can see based on what we've read so far up to Romans 6, 4, God is telling us something that we need to understand. And so if you remember only one thing about today's message, remember this, that Christians practice imperfectly by faith the perfect righteousness that we have been given in Christ. Christians practice imperfectly by faith the perfect righteousness that we've been given in Christ. And that righteousness is perfect obedience. Jesus lives a perfect life, dies receiving the punishment, rises from the dead, and then gives those who believe in him his Holy Spirit. But not only just the Spirit to do better, Jesus also says, you also receive a not guilty verdict. Not because you didn't sin, but because you won't receive any punishment for that sin because you have faith in me. Just like I use a basketball analogy. All the people that play with Michael Jordan won a ring, but most of them only want to ring because they were on Michael Jordan's team. We practice imperfectly by faith the perfect obedience we have been given in Christ. And some of that makes it challenging for us. You see, since we've been declared not guilty, and this is what it means by justified. This is the justified language that we've already talked about. We're not guilty... We live like we're not guilty. In a a, a real court of law, if I'm charged with a crime, and you're charged with a heinous crime and it's media's attention and everything. And then all of a sudden you're acquitted, you're declared not guilty. Part of the celebration of that and part of the reality is not only will you not receive the punishment for that crime, but now you can go on and live your life. Now, obviously, we live in a judgmental culture, right? You are guilty once declared guilty in this culture you used to be guilty until proven innocent and we know that was just verbology the reality is you're guilty if people think you're guilty even if you're proven innocent but in the grand scheme of reality if i'm declared not guilty i'm excited i'm hugging my family We're crying, I'm hugging and thanking my lawyer because not only am I not going to prison, I also can now live my life free of worry. Even if you think I'm guilty, even if you have something negative to say about me, the law has said I'm free. I'm not guilty and I can live my life. And there's a relief that comes off and I'm talking at somebody who's been locked up, who's been through the court system and knows what that freedom feels like. This is how it is in the spiritual realm. Jesus says, Because you believe in me, the Father says, not guilty. So now we live as if you're not guilty. Only a fool would go commit a crime after being let out free. This is what's happening. This is the kind of chapter this is. So to demonstrate this reality, here's what Paul does. He's using the crucifixion and the resurrection as analogical language to the Christian life. So he talks about this, like we see this in, in, in Romans 6. We see, what shall we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can he who died to sin still live in it? So here's that Jesus died, and he's going to flush this out a little bit more, but there's this crucifixion and baptist and uh, being baptized and resurrection language. It's all in this stuff. It says this, are you unaware that all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So, therefore, we were buried with him by baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in this. So So, like as Jesus was raised from the dead, we're raised to live a new life. So, what Paul is going to do, which we're going to flush out, is look at the crucifixion and the resurrection language and use that as an analogy for us to show how we're supposed to be different. But here's the catch it's not really an analogy. It's just a difference between what we see in the natural realm and what God says happens in the spiritual realm. It's not just an analogy. It's an eternal reality, but it's not our experience. See, here's our experience. Here's what we see in the natural realm. Somebody hears the gospel. They accept Jesus as their savior. They believe. Then they find a church to go to. They get baptized. They begin to fight sin. You know, they find joy in God in ways that they had thought were unthinkable. You start to have fellowship with people in the church. You're making friends with people who you wouldn't normally be cool with, but because you both are believers in Jesus, you hanging out with this person, you in their small group, you are confessing sin with this person. You start to share the gospel with other people. And then you persevere and fight for the rest of your life. Take your last breath and be with the Lord. That's what we see in the natural realm. That's kind of Christianity to us on the ground. But what God is doing is saying, let me peel back the layers. Let's let's, let's pretend like this is the Wizard of Oz and go behind the curtain. And let's see what's really behind door number one. And this is what he's doing. So when he says this in verse one, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may about- multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In the eternal realm, here's what God is saying. We died to sin. He means the old you, the old us, the, the what we inherited from Adam that doing whatever we want and defining what we think is good and evil instead of what God thinks. He says we've died to that. We've died to the desire to have that be the way we live our lives. He's saying it no longer has power over us. That's why he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, there's important language here because all of us, we still sin. So we're thinking, wait a minute. What are we talking about? Die to sin, though. What he's saying is, listen, a life of habitual sin, of pursued sin is no longer the life that we lead. This is why he says it in verse one, should we continue in sin? Continue in sin and struggle with sin are two different things. And it gets confusing because sometimes people share the language of struggle and it's not really a struggle. We'd be like, hey, I'm struggling with this. Cool. But then after further review, it's like, well, I'm just giving into it, so there's no struggle. But we use struggle language. He's talking about struggle. See, there's a difference between. Living in sin and living with sin. Those are two different things. He's talking about living in sin is what we don't do, but we live with sin. Those are two different things. This is why he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's that's the right proposition. It's not live with it. There's a difference. Because to live in sin means not to resist it. It's to continue in sin, as verse 1 says. As if you don't believe in Jesus. That's why he says, wait a minute. How do we continue? If you continue in sin so grace may multiply, that's a bad logic. He says, why would you want to continue in sin? How can you continue in sin when you've died to that sin? So he's talking about living in sin is not what you do versus living with sin. So when you live in sin, you don't resist it. You continue in it as if you don't believe in Jesus. When you live with sin, it means you fight against it. Sometimes fail, but you fight again because you believe in Jesus. See, the Bible doesn't say you're not going to sin once you believe in Jesus. What it says is you're not going to be satisfied Living in sin the way you did before the Spirit came in you. There's a difference. It doesn't mean we won't sin. We still got to live with sin. We fight. Sometimes we fail. We give in. But we fight again because we believe in Jesus. Living in sin means we don't resist it, we continue in sin as if we don't believe in Jesus. And what he's saying in verse 1 is that's not impossible for the believer because you've died to sin. You can't live in it. You will not, you cannot live as if sin doesn't matter if you believe in Jesus, genuinely. Now again, there's a difference. Living in sin and living with sin. You cannot be a genuine believer in Jesus Christ and live in sin, continue in sin. But all genuine believers in Christ will live with sin. Fight against it. Sometimes fail, fight again, because we believe. That's real. You cannot, will not live as if sin doesn't matter unless you are unaware of who you are. Listen to what he says in verse 3. Listen to the question he asks. Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. You see his question? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You know what he's saying, translation? Oh, are you aware that your faith in Jesus has changed the power of sin in your life? Do you realize that when you were believing in Jesus from the eternal perspective, God was baptizing you into Jesus and bringing you up like out of like a baptism, you come up as you're a different person. Or when Jesus died and resurrected. Let's think about this for a second. When Jesus was a human being, he definitely allowed himself to do some things that, he, that most human beings can't do. I haven't heard anybody else walk on water. There wasn't a trick. Right? There's some things that he did. But when he came back, though, he was doing different things. Right? It was like when he came back, he would be standing in front of you. You couldn't even recognize him. Luke 24, walking with the disciples, talking about, what you mean? What, what, what y'all so sad about? What's been going on around here? And the dude's like, man, you, where you been? Like, you haven't been around this whole time and seen what happened? And he was like, what you mean? Having a good time. With they don't even know it's Jesus until he breaks the bread. He's just disappearing right in front of them. Comes into a, a locked room. And says, Thomas, put your hand. He does different things. He's risen from the dead. Now he's functioning a little differently. When you rise from the dead in Jesus, you function a little differently. You do some different things. So from God's point of view is once we become believers, we have died to sin. This is his point of view. It doesn't really matter if it's our point of view. Now, it does in terms of our living it out, but it doesn't in terms of it being true or not. God is saying, this is who you are. This is your new identity. And by faith, we live in light of that reality. And this is one of the aspects of Christian living that we must trust God for because it's not our experience. Now, granted, there are times we have victory over struggles that we've had historically, and we see that play out. But on the day-to-day, off the the day-to-day, most of us don't feel like that. And this whole chapter, that's why I think chapters like this are important. This is why this book is important, because God is saying, listen, I need you to know who you are. You ever watch one of those movies where a person loses their memory? And the whole movie is about them trying to reclaim their memory. And they can't think of, they don't know people, they don't know loved ones. You know, like like a movie like Total Recall. You know, he's he's using all these clues to figure out who he is. Because he doesn't have the memory to know who he is. So the whole movie is about him establishing, refinding his identity. And then he ends up having a new identity because he goes against the grain of who he used to be. This is exactly what's happening. God is telling us, this is your new identity. you got to make sure you know who you are because you can still be fooled. So this whole chapter is from God's perspective. And it's deeper than just believing in Jesus for salvation. Faith has to go deeper than that. It has to believe that not only when I die, I'm going to heaven, but I'm also seen as God as something totally different. I'm actually declared not guilty. I'm righteous. That's the only reason why I'm going to have it. If you go on to, to Amazon, or if you just Google the power of positive thinking, if you go on Amazon, you will find a book by the name of by, by Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking, A Practical Guide to Mastering the Problems of Everyday Living. This has 7,616 people that have liked this, and it's four and a half stars. Most people will see a rating like this and be like, this is a good book. To have this many people rate it, and it's four and a half stars, means it's a good book. There's another book, A Year of Positive Thinking, Daily Inspiration, Wisdom, and Courage. From another woman, Cindy Spiegel, 3,572 likes. These are ratings with four and a half stars. The power of positive thinking, even the world understands that the way I think will affect what I do. Even the world, non-Christians get the concept that even Snickers makes a funny Snickers has this funny run of commercials, right? Like people will be celebrities. They'll look like somebody else, like a celebrity, right? It might look like Phyllis Diller or somebody like that. or You know, and then they got to eat a Snickers. And it's like, you know, you're affected by not eating. The world understands the concept of how I think is, is how I'll act. So they have the power of positive thinking. But the reality is, There's no power. There's power in biblical thinking, though. There's power in biblical living. So if non-Christians can think, hey, positive thinking can change my life, then this is biblical thinking. The power in biblical thinking. The power in biblical living is what we're getting. And I think this has a much higher rating especially eternally speaking. And here's part of what God wants us to know. We died to sin because he died for sin. This is what God is telling us. We died because he died. He died for our sins. We died to our sins, meaning I'm not going to let them have authority. I actually can resist some of these feelings that I have or actions that I do. I can resist them only because I have faith in Jesus. His spirit is in me, and now I live in light of that identity. So I don't live in sin, but I definitely live with it. He goes on to further make this point in, in the, second, the next section in Romans 6, 5 through 11. Listen to what he says. He says this. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified. So here's that language, right? Here's the crucifixion, resurrection language, right? For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Oh Man, listen to what he's saying. But we know that our old self was crucified. So it's using the language. He wants the reader to remember what happens when someone's crucified. They die. And he's saying when you believe in Jesus, you essentially have been crucified to the authority and the power of sin in your life. You've died to it. You've died to being comfortable living in sin. Now, there are some of us that may not remember the transformation. You may have grown up in the church and it may sometimes that transformation may be harder for you. I remember clearly how I used to live, how I used to think, what I used to want to do, how I used to scheme and do things. I remember that vividly. He's saying the old self, our old self, was crucified with him so that the body would be rendered powerless. So when someone's dead, that's it. The power has left their body. You take a dead body, move its arms, put it wherever. There's no resistance. There's nothing. Take a dead body and flip it and do all this stuff. There's nothing it can do because there's no power in it. It's dead. You can pose it, do whatever you want. There's no resistance. When a body is dead, it's rendered powerless. What he's saying is when we were crucified, the, we rendered ourselves, the body was rendered powerless so that we won't be enslaved to sin. So once I said, I believe in Jesus and I'm living for Jesus, from God's perspective, not our experience, but from God's perspective, we crucified ourselves and made our body powerless to the power of sin. And when it's talking about it, it's talking about listen to what it says in verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that, the body, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless. See, here's the answer, ruled. The key word is ruled by sin. Doesn't mean you won't sin, it means ruled by it. There is no genuine believer that is ruled by sin anymore. Because you want to honor the Lord. There are times you're like, "Nah, I ain't doing that. I ain't watching that. I ain't saying that. I ain't thinking that. Why? Because you're not ruled by sin anymore. You want to honor the Lord. Sin might be, and its rule is rendered powerless when you believe in Jesus. That he says that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. When you are a slave of something, you do exactly what it says. You do exactly what it says. There's consequences. When you're a slave, you are under its authority, under its power. You do what it says, and that's that. And he's saying, when you believe in Jesus from God, from the eternal realm, it's basically like we were crucified with him and we died. Like he died, he died. He died righteously. We are dying to the unrighteousness of ourselves. We're not, the the power that sin had is now rendered powerless. It does not rule us anymore. We're not enslaved to it. Verse 7. Since a person who has died is freed from sin. That's true in, a, in the natural realm. Once you die, you're no longer going to sin anymore. That's a wrap. If you die, you've now. I mean, I, this, I'm sure our world is a crazy world. Lou, you might be aware of this. I'm not, I've never heard of anybody being accused of doing something after they're dead. And I don't mean while they were alive and then stuff coming out. I'm talking about he been dead and he did that yesterday. I've never heard of anybody being dead 20 years being accused of a crime that we know that was actually dead. I ain't heard a new song from Elvis since he died or Tupac. The reality is once you're dead, you can't sin anymore. So in the spiritual realm, God is saying you've died to sin. You can't sin in the same way anymore. And by that, what I mean is you can't sin like it just doesn't matter. You're going to experience some struggle or if you do it, some conviction. You will not be comfortable living the rest of your life sinfully. First John three, no one born of God can continue sinning. First John three, nine, you just will not feel comfortable. And that is a good thing. Because if you do feel comfortable, then that means the spirit is not there. The spirit is not there preventing you. So You don't feel bad about feeling bad when you sin. That's good. That's grace. Verse 7. So, so since a person has been freed, since a person who has died is freed from sin. Verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, We believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, so here's that resurrection language, right? You get the crucifixion and resurrection language. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So that, so that, so you too consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This whole passage assumes that we believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus and that assumes that we want to live in light of that reality. So God is using this analogy, but it's not really an analogy, but we'll call it an analogy because it doesn't always equate to our experience. But it's not an analogy. It's an eternal analogical reality. God uses this, what happened to Jesus in the physical world, to show us what's happening to us in the spiritual world. That's what God is doing. Our faith in his death is a big deal to God. Listen to how he describes it again. Look at verse 5. These are ways, this is from God's perspective about you and I. This is how God sees this. This is a big deal to him. Listen to what he says. If we have been united with him in the likeness of his death. You see the likeness? The similarity. We're united with him in the likeness of his death. You know why it says likeness? Because Jesus physically died. That's not how we're united to him in the physical sense of his death because we're still technically alive in the way we describe being alive. The likeness of his death is that it's similar is that Jesus physically died we are spiritually living as if we physically died to sin this is God's perspective this is a big deal it says you are united with him in the likeness of his death verse 6 it says you have been crucified with him for we know that our old self was crucified with him That's A serious statement See, the crucifixing language. We know that our old self—the person who wants to sin, the person who boasts about "I don't hold my tongue for nobody," the person who is sexually immoral, the person who loves the gossip, the person who loves to be bitter and judgmental towards people, the person who sells drugs and who schemes, and is a, the person who lusts after people, the person who wants to have sex with children, the person who fill in the blank. That person, that old self has been crucified with Jesus. This is crucified with him. This is how God sees our faith in his son. Listen, we're behind the curtain. Let's go back and see how the sausages really get made. What's that meat we've really eaten from McDonald's? Never mind, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that right now. Stop laughing, JP. It's not good. From God's perspective, we are crucified with him. Verse six, verse seven, freed from sin. Is that your experience? Not mine, but freed from the power of sin. Yeah, because there's a lot I used to do. I don't do no more. And there are times when I do things I used to do, I don't feel the same about it. Even memories that I used to do, sometimes I'm like, Dad, I can't believe I used to do that. I grieve over things that I haven't done in a long time. Why? Because I see them now as someone who's died to that sin. It's just not the same. And don't get me wrong. We'll talk in a minute about, you know, there's still a reality. We got to fight, but it's not the same. These are all God's perspective. Whether we have this perspective or not is irrelevant on one level. Well, it's irrelevant in the sense that it's true whether we believe it or not. But it's not irrelevant in the sense that if you don't believe it, you won't live like it. So it has to be relevant because otherwise you won't live according to who God says you are because you have faith in Jesus. And you'll live probably a defeated Christian life feeling condemned when you do sin as if you're living in sin. When the reality is, no, you're a believer that's living with sin. He says this in verses 8 to 11. He emphasizes dead to sin, alive to God. It said, death no longer rules over Jesus. And then it says this in verse 11. Listen to this, a powerful verse. One of the most powerful verses in this chapter, maybe all of Scripture. Here's what he says in verse 11. After saying all of this stuff, we've died to sin. We've, Jesus has died and we've died to, to, we, for the death he died. He died to sin once for all, but he lives to God. The life he lives, he lives to God. Then in verse 11, he says, so you too consider yourselves Dead to to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You hear what he's saying? So you consider yourself. In other words, believe this about yourself. Is what he's saying in verse 11. So you too consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Oh, boy, that's a serious charge. He's he's saying, consider, right? Consider yourself. Believe this about yourself from God's perspective. Now, it may take faith, and some of us may need to pray, Lord, help me believe this about myself. Because if you believe this about yourself, you're going to eventually live like this, and you're going to have some victory. Most of the Christian life and the challenge with it is because we just don't believe this about ourselves. He says, so consider yourselves, you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's actually a command from God. You must, we must, you, me, us, we must see ourselves as dead to sin. Sure, sure. But Jesus and our faith in him, God takes very seriously. It's a big deal to him. And so he says, believe this about yourself. That from God's perspective, you are dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. You have to believe this about yourself or you can't do what he says next. Beginning in verse 12. He says, "Is therefore because of everything I just said about being dead to sin and alive in Jesus. And, and you need to believe that about yourself. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So here it is. Here's the live with sin, right? The live in sin is like just not tripping. We don't care. We're just giving in. Uh, I can't do it. I'm giving up. I'm just going to enjoy sin, right? But here in verse 12, this is the live with sin part. So he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Why? So that you obey its desires. Here's the living with sin component. God isn't saying you are sinless. He's saying sin less because of your faith in Jesus. Jesus was sinless so we can sin less. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. See what he's saying? Don't let sin that you're still living with have authority over you so that you are just obeying its desires. Why would you do that? when you've died to it. And then he says this, verse 13, and do not offer any parts of it to to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness, for sin will not rule over you because you are not under law, but under grace. With as much clarity as can be given, God makes this pronouncement and tells us, just because you're living with sin, don't let it have authority over you as if you're living in it. It's the difference. Now, remember this from God's perspective. Your experience might be, I feel like I'm living in sin. Let's talk about it. And we all feel that way. I think we all have some areas where we feel like, We just ain't really exercising the kind of power that we have. And we'll get to that in a moment. I know I do. I do. I'm not going to even, even, what they say? I'm not even going to hold you. I get it, man. Sometimes I don't always believe this stuff. I believe it's true intellectually, but I don't always believe it functionally. And I'm more comfortable with that. You know why? Because to be honest with us, let's just be honest. It's more comfortable acknowledging and identifying with things that we've done habitually. It's just easier to say, I mean, this is true because I've done it 100,000 times. It's easier to identify with attitudes, actions, words, thoughts, emotions that are not glorifying to God because that's kind of who we are for real. So all of us have functional areas where like, man, I'm not coming down the mountain with two stone tablets. I'm preaching with authority because I need to believe this myself. But it must be believed. It must be believed. God says, you too, you, me, us, and we consider yourself dead. So don't let the sin that you're living with reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. You see what he's telling us? He's telling us that there's a connection between what reigns, what's what's king in our life, what rules us, what we submit to. There's a connection between what reigns and what we obey. Whatever I think reigns in my life, I will obey, follow, listen, and be subject to. So if I think that pornography reigns in my life, I will be subject to it. If I think that anger reigns in my life, then I will be subject to follow it. If I think that gossip reigns in my life, I'm not, it's going to be hard to not ever do it. If I believe that sinful complaining or judgment Reigns in my life, it's going to be hard not to do it. If I believe that bitterness reigns in my life, It's going to be hard not to do it. If I believe that self-righteousness Reigns in my life, it's going to be hard not to do it. If I believe fear of man reigns in my life, It's going to be hard not to do it. That's the, that's the connection. Don't let it reign in your mortal body So that you obey its desires. This is why different, different sidebar, The scripture tells us in Romans 12, we'll get there. And in 2 Corinthians 10, to take these thoughts captive. This is why we talked about the, the pattern of how we get to sin is consider, justify, agree, act. You can't help what sin wants you to consider, but you can start to justify it. He's saying, look, you live with sin. It's going to, it's want, you, it's going to want you to consider giving into it. Don't justify it. Don't agree with it, and then don't act on it. Whatever reigns in us will dictate how we act. Whatever reigns in us is going to come from us. I think Jesus said, he called it out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We will submit to whatever we think reigns over us. And what Jesus is saying is there's no circumstance. Listen, even with a gun to your head, no one can make you do what you don't want to do. It's impossible. Now, you may not like the options. You know, I've heard horror stories of Christians who have said either you denounce Christ or we're going to rape your children right in front of you. And what parent wants to see that? What parent wouldn't struggle with watching something happen to their children, and the children are crying out for you knowing that you could do something and you don't, and, and you're sitting there, and you either do or you don't? That person can't make you do that. What makes you do that is not wanting something to happen to your child. Even with a gun to your head and death impending, you cannot do anything that you don't choose to do. There will never be an instance where we will be able to stand before God and say, I was living wrong for the right reason. I sinned because this person said this. You make me so angry. No, they don't. Maybe what you wanted them to say or not say is what made you angry. Maybe the lack of respect that this person gave you that you think you deserve makes you angry. But they didn't make you sin. They made you consider sinning. You justified, you agreed, and you acted. He's saying, here, listen, you live with sin. Don't let it reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And he talks about this in verse 13, which is one of my favorite verses. And I really appreciate the rendering of this verse, because in other verses it says this, and do not offer any parts of it as as to sin as weapons of unrighteousness. I love that in the translation that I'm using. In other translations, it might say as instruments of unrighteousness. So it says, do not offer any parts of it. It is the body. Do not offer any parts of your body as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. So it, it gives us this reality. Listen to the words. Do not offer. Understand what that means. Do not offer. It's saying that it's a choice. So no one is making me do anything. It's a choice. I'm offering my body, my thoughts, my actions, my attitudes, my words. I'm offering them as a weapon of unrighteousness. It's a choice I'm making. Brothers and sisters, you have to know it's a choice you're making. I don't care what someone says or does, it's a choice you're making. Jesus was getting crucified and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He let them whip him 39 times. He let them spit on him and smack him in his face. This is God we're talking about. And he did nothing. Now, he says, do likewise. But that's not our experience, is it? It's not. Not always. And so we just feel separated from what this description of us is. So God is reminding us what this description is. Who are we? We are people that can offer This is not a passive act. It's a giving in. This is a willful act. It's a willful decision. Do not offer any parts of your body, of the it, to, to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. Why would we even offer it as a weapon of unrighteousness? Like, why would we? You've heard me say this before, but it, it goes without saying that The reason why we offer our bodies to sin is because there's pleasure in it. Sin is about pleasure. It's about pleasure. This is why I tell my sons this all the time, especially as I have more conversations with them about it. You got to understand the the dilemma that we're in right now. Yes, sin is evil, and we want to get to that, but we have to deal with the reality of it. Like, There's pleasure in sin. There's pleasure. It feels good to give in to sin. Most of us, when we do things, it's pleasurable. Sexual immorality is pleasurable. Lying to someone and not having to deal with the consequences of the truth is pleasurable. Being angry at someone, whether you explode or whether you quietly see them, it feels good sometimes. It feels like justice. It feels like vindication. I'm not letting them walk all over me. Being bitterness feels good because someone has offended you or hurt you and you don't want to forgive them. Forgiving them may feel weak. It feels good. Off the Tony, Tony, Tony. It feels good. Hebrews 11, 24 and 25 says this. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. Scripture calls it, it's fleeting pleasure. I think we're often too ashamed to admit that we still enjoy the pleasure of sin. And by faith, we're fighting against it, right? But we still enjoy the pleasure of sin. I've never myself or sat with anyone that has been like crying like, please, I don't want to look at this image. I don't want to yell at this. I've never heard anybody feel like that. You might feel like that afterwards, but you're not feeling like that when you do it. I haven't personally, I just, it just, you just, you fail. It's, It's pleasurable. So what God is asking us to do in this life He's asking us to fight the desire to have sinful pleasure here so that we have eternal pleasure there. That's the battle. That's the battle of sanctification, at least. That's not all that Christianity is about. It's not just sin management. That's a dangerous way to see your Christian life. Christianity is not just managing my sin. That's only a part of it. Sanctification is one part of it. It's a big part, but it's not the only thing that we do. But God is saying, listen, you can have immediate gratification here, which will actually harm you, or you can have eternal satisfaction later, which will actually strengthen you. So in faith, like Moses, we are resisting letting this sin reign in our body and experience the pleasure from it here because we believe by faith that the pleasure is greater there. And that's why we fight this is what chapter 6 is about. This is about fighting. This is about believing in your identity so that you don't live as someone who acts like they don't believe in Jesus. Make the distinction between living in sin and living with it. There's pleasure in sin. But he uses this language and don't offer any of it as a weapons for unrighteousness, but offer yourselves as weapons for righteousness. I love it. He uses the word weapon. I love it. What's the purpose of a weapon? If anyone has a weapon, it's usually going to be to defend themselves, to attack someone, to harm someone, to kill them, to fight. Like when you have a weapon, it's going to be used in some way to protect yourself and harm someone else. It's a weapon. He says this. Listen, you have weapons. You have weapons of unrighteousness that you can be used for unrighteousness or weapons that you can be used for righteousness. So the question is, if we have weapons, what are we fighting? Or better, who are we fighting? If it says that don't let your body be given to parts, do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but offer yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness, then we are fighting either against sin or we are fighting against the son. So we either fight against the sin in us or the son in us, but we're using weapons to fight somehow. And his point is, don't fight the son in you, fight the sin in you. Don't use the weapons that you have for unrighteousness because then you're fighting against the spirit in you, the son in you. Use those weapons for righteousness to fight against the sin that's still in you that you're living with. There's no middle ground. Who is your weapon aimed at? Your sin or the son? That's the concern. This is the concern. Who is my weapon aimed at? The sin in me or the son in me? Because I got weapons. You got weapons. It's not that no one has weapons. It's just what do you use them for? Unrighteousness or righteousness? There's a lot more I want to say. But I actually want to hear that last song again, brother. So we're going to stop here for today. We will pick up next Sunday in Romans 6.15. I I just want to hear this, this song again, that last one. And then if you have any questions, put them up on the screen, and then we will answer any questions. If you don't, then I look forward to seeing you on Wednesday. I'm going to step down for a second because it's going to look weird. If I'm sitting here and let JP do his thing, and then I'll be back up if we have any questions. Thank you.
1: unto the lord glory to his name ascribe unto the lord Sing a scribe one more time. Ascribe unto.
0: listen to that joint all day I don't know what it is but I love those words and love the way you sing it brother thank you it's a lot of things for me but that song is ministering to me this morning alright we got a couple questions so who better than to have uh, to ask the questions than our, than our pastor Pastor Mike Dixon who is currently watching online right now Matt can you hear me I can hear you, my brother. I still
2: can. Good morning. Glad to hear that news about Bessie,
0: man. Praise Amen. God. Amen, bro. Amen to that. What you got? You got any questions?
2: Yes, I do. So um, the first one uh, is um, the person says, you know, uh, battle language in the Bible is something that they find inspiring and scary. Mm-hmm. Um, all the conquer this and subdue that sounds great, but... Uh, Their struggle with the same thoughts and sins makes them wonder how could they actually have conquered it. Um, So though I know I'm not enslaved to it because sometimes I do conquer, I also know uh, some things that keep recurring. So what kind of encouragement would you give such a person?
0: That's a good question. So I'd say first, I think we have to, so we live in a tension, right? We kind of theologically call this the already not yet tension. Like we believe that Christ has, you know, uh, has victory, right? We believe all these things about the law, then. but when we look around, we don't see that. So a lot of obedience is fa- is living by faith with action, right? You're still living by faith. It's not necessarily about like, How do I feel about it? It's what are the actions? What do I do with this? And you're going to have to battle, obviously, those feelings. But a lot of this type of language God is using because he understands it is a fight. It's a war we're in. I mean, think about Ephesians 6, right? 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual principalities. And he names all these different levels of demonic realm that we are battling against. So, so your fight is not just in the flesh. It's a spiritual battle. And so when God uses this language, he's using it to encourage us that he's given us weapons to fight against them. But again, as we talked about today, there's a difference between living in sin and living with sin. What you're describing is the process of living with sin. So when God talks about conquering, it's, it's, I, don't, I don't think God is talking about, in this instance, you just conquer it and then it'll go away. It's, it's more of a way of life. It's I'm going to continue to fight this and conquer it and make steps to get to that point. And, that, and, this is, and the beauty of this is that, listen, God knows like your struggle. He knows what you can and can't accomplish. And sometimes, and I'm not saying you're whoever asked this question is doing that, but sometimes we look at God and we think like God doesn't know that we're really trying we almost act like our failure and our efforts are the only thing that God is aware of. Like he doesn't understand anything beyond did we give in or did we not? Like he sees your battle. He sees the circumstances in which you are fighting, the circumstances that tempt you to give in. He sees that. But he also sees you wanting to fight, willing to fight. And that's what pleases him. Because what you're doing is what I said earlier in the message, you're living by faith. You're living imperfectly by faith. You're living out the perfect obedience that God has already given you. So when you stand before God, he's not going to be like, man, but you did this, this, and this. Like, and then you're going to be punished for it. No, it's like, no, you've been forgiven. I've given Christ's righteousness to you, so I'm rewarding you for living by faith in light of that righteousness, even if at times you were unrighteous. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so keep fighting. Don't, I know it's discouraging, and, and, and you can get to me. I think I know who this is. You know, I think I know who you are. We'll talk about this. But I think we have to kind of look at what the Bible says, particularly in Romans 6, and think, okay, how do I make this the functional, motivational reality for me? And I think it's very possible. Even though you will, remember, live with sin, you're not living in sin, and there's a big difference. It's a good question.
2: So I wonder if you would have anything different to say, or if you would just reiterate what you said to a person who basically is, it looks like every month they basically have a prayer to God where they just pray that they wouldn't send anymore for the rest of their life. Um, and that's at the beginning of each month, it looks like from the way the question is phrased. Um, so is there anything you would say to encourage such a person who desires wonderfully, not to sin anymore for the rest of their life, but is running up against the reality that they live with sin.
0: Yeah. I'm, well, I mean, that's, I, yes, I've never heard anybody pray that. So I think I, 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 first of all, let me say this, be encouraged because the fact that you're praying that is a fruit of the spirit in your life, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't want to give in to sin and you're struggling with the fact that you have. So I, I'm encouraged that that desire does not come from someone who doesn't want to please God. Right. You just, that's Romans 8. And we'll, we'll be there in a couple weeks. That the, the, the mind, the flesh cannot please God. Right. The mind of the flesh. So praying that prayer means you want to please God. However, I think your prayer is outside of what the Bible calls us to do. The prayer, your prayer, not sinning again is not something that God says that we do in this life. So there's there's a number of verses that God encourages us to continue to to, to fight. Like 1 John 2.1, little children, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. But when you sin, you have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, right? You get verses like Hebrews 3, 13 and 14, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that we may not be given them to sin. You've got Galatians 6.2. If anyone sins, you who are spiritual, restore that person gently, right? There's this reality that we're going to sin against one another. And so I think while your prayer is really an aspiration to honor the Lord, it might be actually discouraging you because it's not one that the Bible clearly lays out that we're <clears> supposed <throat> to do. So what I would say is I don't think I would pray that anymore But I would I would focus in and say, Lord, help me to grow and just think of it like today, like just right now. Lord, help me to focus today. Like I want to honor you today because Jesus said this, man, tomorrow has its own worries. He said, worry about today. So I wouldn't pray that prayer anymore, to be honest. Or if you pray it, pray it knowing what it what, what, what the Bible actually calls you to do. And I'm not saying you're doing this. I'm going to say something else now that's a little bit more of a pushback to that. I'm not saying you're doing this, but, but, but you could also be not wanting to do the work of sanctification, which the Bible <clears> calls us to. Do. Lord, take, the, take this sin away from me because now I don't got to struggle with it no more and all of that stuff. And, and that's not really biblical. I think the, the process of growing in Christ is the process of learning by faith to walk out, to live imperfectly the perfect righteousness that we've gotten from Jesus. So the reward is not sinlessness in this life. The reward is perseverance in this life, crown of righteousness in the next life. So I, I wouldn't pray that necessarily unless you're going to contextualize it to what you mean. So I'm encouraged by it. But I think also, it's, I don't think it's a good, good idea.
2: All right. Um... No, the last few weeks and uh, even in this message, you've talked a lot about identity, Mm -hmm. identity in Christ. And um, we have a person who's, uh, this is a very pastoral question. Um, They uh, they are adopted, but they have a desire to find their biological parents. Um, So they can sometimes, I guess, they struggle with like, whether or not they appreciate the adoption that they received in Christ, how how uh, could a person like that appreciate the adoption they find in Christ that shapes their identity as opposed to their you know their natural experience of being adopted and being a little bit disappointed with that?
0: Mm, mm, wow, what a good question. So a couple things come to my mind. The first is those are two really different things. Okay, so. Adoption in the human sense and then adoption by God is different. All right, I'm gonna explain <clears> in a second. Those are different things. So, and you might not say this, but let me make a quick statement. And if this isn't what you meant, then they, as we used to say, if it don't apply, let it fly. All right, uh, uh, adoption in, in a human sense and wanting to understand who your parents are is not in any way necessarily a dis. Respect or anything to your adopted parents. There are questions that you have. There are things that you want to understand about who you are. Like when you're adopted in a human sense, you don't necessarily take on the characteristics, you don't take on the health issues, you don't take on the personalities of a lot of the things. You just are welcomed into a new family. So you still have questions about who you are, about health issues, about why you look the way you look, why you think, those things can come from your biological parents. So that's, there's no problem there in just a general sense. When we're adopted, though, into God, it's adopted in a totally different way. It's people who were children of wrath, people who were children of God's judgment, have now become children of God's grace. And so, and you, you, you we receive By faith, we become what the Bible calls co-heirs. We'll get to this in Romans 8. Co-heirs with Christ, which means he gets an inheritance that he shares with those who believe in him in heaven. And we get new characteristics. So it's in the world, you don't look like your adopted parents just because they adopted you. But in Jesus, you start to look like him. You start to act like him. You start to resist things because you want to glorify him. You start to become like the Lord. That's why the adoption is totally different. It's taking you from going to hell to letting you re- 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 be in heaven, rest in heaven with Jesus forever. And, and this process of growth is you're learning how to look like him, which doesn't happen in, the, in a human sense with, with biological parents. So there are really two different things. So you can appreciate the, the, the theological doctrine of adoption as a Christian because God is making you look like his son and he is taking you and changing you to become someone who can rest with him in eternity. See, if you look at Revelation, right? This is a crazy thought I'm getting right say, so don't be mad at me. When you look at Revelation, when God pours out the bowls of his wrath on humanity, whether it's figurative or not, we're not talking about that right now, It's not, but let me talk. Let me. Let me. We'll talk about that later. So when God does that, and it says these the the boils get on their skin, and it says the people curse God. You would think that people would want to be like, "No, Lord, please forgive me." You would think that, but the Bible says that people actually get more offended when God judges them. Now, why am I saying that? Because in this life, God is preparing us through the process of change, and and fighting our sin. He's preparing us to be able to be with him in eternity for heaven because if you're not prepared, you can't be there. You see, you can't be, you don't want to be in God's presence. So God is training us now to want to be in his presence so that we fully appreciate it later. The people who don't want to be in God's presence don't even change their minds when they experience his judgment. So, so, in the, so, the, so the adoption In a sense, is God choosing you to be a part of his family, changing you to resemble him so that and training you to help you live with him in a way that's totally different than when you're adopted by human biological parents. So definitely feel encouraged by that. And I appreciate the question. Very
2: good question. All right. this uh next question is, is a two-parter but i'll just ask them separately just for the sake of cohesion um this person feels like some sins like slander or gossip or complaining or being judge, judgmental um they they don't even consciously come to uh those kinds of sins don't come to their mind through the consider justify agree act a uh, paradigm that you've laid out Um, So they're wondering how um, are they supposed to believe that they're not enslaved to these sins if they don't even uh, happen consciously or that they feel like they have control over them, those sins.
0: Okay, so there's a couple issues there. One, whether you, my paradigm works or not, I tried to pull it from scripture, right? But whether you think that paradigm works or not, you still have a problem. And it's, it's the problem is there are promises that God has made that you are struggling to believe. So the paradigm doesn't even matter at this point. You, your issue is more, do I believe what God has said about me that I am a believer in him? Number one. Number two, part of Christianity is to train ourselves So this is this is we train ourselves to spot these things like we don't like I don't. So the question I would have. So one of the ways that we train ourselves, there's many ways. But here's one way that we get trained when we give in to sin, we we see it and we ask God for forgiveness for it. And then we ask others for forgiveness for it when we see it. So that way we understand that this is actually sinful, that this is something that I need to pay attention to right? That's one of the ways that we give in is that when we fail, it's known, it's obvious. So uh, my question would be, are you one that goes back and acknowledges that that's sinful? And then do you do the work of asking those who you may have sinned against for that? Because if you don't, then of course you won't catch it. You can do what the scripture calls as grieving the heart. And I'm not saying you don't, I'm just saying in general general terms. I, I obviously don't even know who you are. But what I'm saying is that the the issue of you not being conquered by sin it may mean that you have to give some attention to the promises that indicate that and that by faith you start believing and living that way that and all of us have to do that there's no magic formula here right it's not like there's no holy zaps here it's not like lord please change me wow everyone is just i just love all people Nah, I pray, Lord, help me love them, and they do something that makes me hate them. And when I say, I'm I'm using that being facetious, they don't make me hate them. But what I want to not happen, my own entitlement or my own (laughs) desires. So I think what I would do is look at passages like, well, look at, I mean, look at what we, I mean, I would, you know what I would do? Study thoroughly Romans 6. Like study, and here's what I would do, pray through Romans 6. And what I mean by it is you open up Romans 6, and this is what you do. Take the next month and do this. And you think, a month, man, you you work harder at other things that don't even have eternal value. But look, take the next month and just say, okay, verse one, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? And just spend some time saying, Lord, please help me to not continue in sin so that grace may multiply. Help me recognize that I'm not trying to sin then take advantage of your grace. Help me, you know, go verse by verse and pray that the Lord would have you really believe that because there's some things that you got to believe that doesn't matter what paradigm you use for sanctification.
2: All right. The, uh, second question is, is is similar. Um, and, and they use the same, you know, same categories of gossip, uh, standard negativity, judgment, that kind of thing. Um, so they they are aware of how miserable those sins are making them, and they have a lot of accountability in, in their life to try to stop sinning. But um, they don't agree that these types of sins are at all pleasurable. So they ask, "How would I know if I'm actually feeling ashamed of how pleasurable these sins are and
0: denying the pleasure?" So the last, say the last part again.
2: Um, the last, uh, the question was, how would I, how would I know if I'm actually feeling ashamed of how pleasurable these sins are and denying their pleasure?
0: Well, you, if I'm understanding correctly, you kind of just said it, right? You said that they're not pleasurable sins. So you already feel, and then because you have accountability set up, you already feel the, so we, we, we didn't get there today. We'll get there next week, but Romans 621 asked this question. And we're going to spend some time there next week, but it asks this question. So what fruit was produced then from the things you were now ashamed of? <clears throat> right, so even, even, so this question, it seems like you're pondering sort of this question in a certain way. So you already have come to that conclusion. Don't be tripped up over the, the, the reality of me saying there's pleasure. in sin. I think sin is pleasurable. I think you are experiencing, you're in a dichotomy that seems like you sound more overwhelmed potentially by sin and trying to figure out these particular sins that you're naming. These sound like sins that you may be given to. I think just what I would do is just focus on continuing to fight against those. Uh, I would I would actually and I don't know how you're I don't know who I don't know how you're doing this, but that those are a lot of things to do. I, I, I would zoom in on one or two of them. And really say, okay, I'm going to go after this one carefully because when we fight sin, we don't, it's not, it's not like sin isn't, fighting sin isn't compartmentalization. Like we don't be like, it's not like, okay, I'm working on anger. So I'm going to be, I'm going to give in the lust. I'm going to give in the lying. I'm going to give in the fear of man and everything. You're always working on everything if you're a genuine believer. You're working on everything on some level at the same time. The spirit isn't like, okay, we do one at a time. So let's just focus on this. So I think you might be a little bit too broad in your, what you're going after. Which one do you feel like, and, just, and if, you don't, if you're not sure, ask those who are kind of discipling you and helping you, who are holding you accountable, hey, what, which ones of these do you think I should really give more attention to? And I guarantee you give attention to one or two of those, it's going to affect the rest of them because we don't just fight one sin at a time. What God does and will often do is he may emphasize an area, but that's more his mercy then who's saying, look, just, I want you to focus on this right now. I would try to see if I can find that Then looking at this spectrum of sins and, because you really, you really don't just give in to other things because you're focusing on one thing. And that can help you just deal with the, whatever you're getting from those, fight against those, it'll spread beyond those. Um, this
2: is the last question. Um, and uh, the question is, um, you said uh, a couple of times that Christianity is not just about managing our sin. Mm-hmm. Um, what are other elements of our identity that we should uh, be intentional to embrace besides fighting sin?
0: So I think mission. I think we tell other people about Jesus. I think we I think that's a huge one uh, that we talk to other people about the Lord. I think serving. So I think the, so the values of our church, right? Oh, love one another, increasing the knowledge of God connect with our community, serve, give, those are all things that have nothing to do with sin management. Every one of those values that we've taken directly from Bible passages have nothing to do with sin management. Maybe increasing in the knowledge of God, because that is about transformation and obedience. Maybe that one. But connecting with our community, serving, giving, those, unless serving is like something selfish that you you want to be seen in like a positional sense and so now you have to f- battle not thinking of being a servant in, as a position but more as a posture of the heart which is what Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 10 but I think there's a lot of stuff that just like just, just even the values love one another, increasing in the knowledge of God, connect with our community, serve, give some of those they could have to do with you might be fighting temptation to give in to those but those aren't necessarily about sin management like there are other things that that God cares about and the way that we think about things. Like, like, like prime example, we talk about praying, right? Some, uh, historically, I remember maturity was if you, if you had a quiet time and if you prayed to the Lord every day. That was kind of like how you measured your maturity, you having a quiet time. Man, there were times I read the Bible for an hour in the morning prayed and then forgot what I read by 11 a.m. Like, it's, it's not just reading and praying that does it. But what, how am I applying this? This is why I love meditation, because it makes me think about what I'm reading. It makes me think about what God's word is saying. And then I start to, you know, so again, I think we're, you, you got to think of it as, as more the, uh, the genuine Christian life is not just fighting sin. It's not just, okay, did I sin or not? Like, if And I'll say this, and some people might have a problem with this theologically. That's fine. Uh, uh, Get in line. But I'll say this. If God, if it was really about just getting rid of all sin, then God could have easily made the power of the spirit feel more palpable in fighting sin. Like he could have easily made it be like, zoom, we just, no, there are times, if we're being honest, it's Sunday, right? Let's be honest. If we're being honest, there are times we don't feel like we got power to fight. I feel with the spirit. That's why people believe in stuff like baptismal regeneration. That's why people believe I got to I got to I need to speak in tongues in order to prove I had the spirit because you just don't feel it in your day to day life. But that's only because you don't understand what it means to be dead. See, when you're dead, then you have no desire to honor the Lord. That's Ephesians 2 and that's Romans 8 when we get there in a couple weeks. You have no desire to honor the Lord. So when there is desire to arm the Lord, that's biblically called life. That's what's called life. See, life and death for us is physically here or physically gone. Life and death to God is in Jesus or out of Jesus. That's why you can be physically alive, but be dead in transgressions and sins. The fact that you have any desire to glorify God means that the spirit of God is at work somewhere. Do we wish he would work stronger so we don't sin? Pray, uh, hey, praise God for that. And there are moments and times where he does. But God, the reason why God doesn't is because he cares more about faith. Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And it takes faith to, to, to be obedient to God. And it takes faith to believe that we're forgiven by God and we have power over sin. It takes faith. If, if all of that just happened, it would be no faith. So, so that's, that's, that's what I would say. A lot more could be said, but... I'm sure we'll have some more questions when we get into the second half of Romans chapter six next week. That's all you got. That's it, bro. Hey, man, good. Good to hear your voice. Miss you, man. Looking forward to seeing you again face to face.
2: Soon, soon to be.
0: Soon, soon to, be. to be. You want to say yes, anything sir. to the party people out there?
2: Well, I just want to thank everyone who who uh, prayed for us, and I know Kurt already. Thank you for um, on Wednesday for all of your service to the rogers family but i just wanted, to since i'm part of that family i just wanted to thank you um thank you for your prayers for one another for the sanders for lauren and for your service um and i miss you guys and can't wait till we can uh see each other face to face again uh i love the screen i'm thankful for that but i can't wait to see some of y'all face to face um so god bless you and thank you much love to each and every one of you and thanks for letting me uh Take the mic a little bit, Kurt. Appreciate
0: that, my brother. Nah, man. We're going to use that technology to the fullest extent. We're going to use it. All right. Having said that, love you guys, and we will see you Wednesday at One Another Faces Out. And don't forget, those of you that watch uh, Wanda, some of y'all still owe me an apology. I'll be looking for that on Wednesday night. Told y'all. <laughs> looking for that Wednesday night. My hand is shaking because I'm, I'm fighting. I'm, I'm considering being angry, and I'm trying not to justify it. <laughs> See y'all Wednesday. All
1: right. All right. Bye.